Uh, I'd like to start with a disclaimer. If you have to be someplace before 1230, you should send a text. You're going to be late. Um, we are going to run a little long today, but when it gets long, just remember I cut four points. Okay, so that should help. That should help you feel better. This morning, I'd like for us to talk about stories. We love stories. We love hearing and telling stories. I have no doubt that I could ask most of you, and you could come up with a story at some point in your life that has impacted you deeply. I would also guess that if I was to ask you to share some meaningful memory of a person, a place, an experience, most likely you're not going to give me a list of facts. You're going to share a story, a story that you tell to kind of embody the, the depth of that person, that place, that experience, something that would help me connect to it. And that's because God's created us. He's wired our brains to respond to stories. The University of California at Berkeley did a study on the impact of stories on our brains, and here are some of the things they found. They help us relate to one another. They help us make more connections between the left and right side of the brain. They help us remember and integrate what we learn. They synchronize our brain waves with those of the storyteller. They activate brain regions involved in deciphering or imagining a person's motives and perspective. They increase neural activity fivefold. They connect the brain with the heart. They are the most effective teaching tool we have. They help people accept issues more readily, and they sustain our attention and help us emotionally resonate with the story's characters. So when you consider the ways that stories impact our brains, it's not hard to understand why we like them so much. It also makes sense why God chose to give us so much of his word in the form of stories, whether that's historical narratives or all the way to parables. You see, there's a power in stories. They, they stick with us. They impact both our heart and mind. They draw us into the conversation with God. But stories, especially stories in the Bible, aren't without their challenges. You see, rarely does God tell us all we want to know. Unlike other authors, he doesn't usually give us direct insight into the hearts, the thoughts, the motivations of the characters. He also doesn't usually give us a clear, direct statement about the moral or the morals of the story. In other words, there's some subjectivity to reading and comprehending the stories God has given us. So when you read the story of Ruth, you're going to connect with it. You're going to understand it. You're going to feel it in some different ways than I do. But not just that, you're also going to connect with it differently than when you read it the next time, right? The next time you come to the book of Ruth, a new you is reading it, and you'll connect in different ways. It'll resonate differently. So as a result, the Holy Spirit each time takes fresh insights or fresh applications and applies them in our lives, building on what you learned the last time. Now, we have to be careful here. I am not saying everyone's free to determine their own meaning of Scripture, not even stories. There is a single correct meaning in everything that God has given us in His Word. Now, 
Sometimes that meaning is clearer than others, but there's always a single correct meaning. I'm not encouraging or condoning you to eisegete the Bible in any way, even the stories. And if you're not familiar with the word eisegesis, here's a definition for you. Eisegesis is the process of interpreting text in such a way as to introduce one's own presuppositions, agendas, or biases. It's commonly referred to as reading into the text. It's an interpretation, especially of Scripture, that expresses the interpreter's own ideas, biases, or the like, rather than the meaning of the text. It's highly subjective. Now, you see, when we come to Scripture, our goal is not to read it in that way, but to exegete it, to exegete God's Word, even the stories. And here's a definition for you of exegesis. Exegesis is the process of interpreting a text by drawing out its meaning in accordance with the context and discoverable meaning of its author. It's an objective interpretation of a text. Simply put, exegesis is not discovering what we think a text means, but what the biblical author meant. It's concerned with intentionality, what the author intended the original readers to understand. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, if we have to approach all of Scripture, even stories, objectively, seeking to understand the author's original intended meaning, then where's the subjective part of reading the stories? Well, the subjective part has to do with how our hearts and our emotions resonate with the characters, the situation, or the story as a whole. And the more diligently we are to objectively understand the text, the more our hearts will resonate with the message that the author intended to give us. The more likely we are to be impacted by that truth. So, for example, let me set the scene for today's story by reviewing where we are in the book of Ruth, the scene of the story. A famine hit Israel, and there was a man named Elimelech, and he led his family, his wife Naomi and their two sons, to leave Israel and journey to the country of Moab, hoping to find food leading them out from the blessing of protection of being with God's covenant people in God's promised land. Well, while they were there, Elimelech died in Moab, leaving his wife Naomi to care for her, own, her two sons alone. Eventually, as the sons get older, their two sons, Maelon and Kilion, marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Well, not long after their marriages, Malon and Kilion also die, leaving these, leaving these three women to struggle to provide for themselves. They finally hear about God ending the famine in Israel, and Naomi decides to return home. Well, her two daughters-in-law offer to go with her, but Naomi blesses them and encourages them to return to their father's homes and remarry. Orpah through many tears, agrees and returns to her home. But Ruth, as you know, passionately resists and commits to go with Naomi. And one of the most moving passages of Scripture, when she says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. 
Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Naomi and Ruth, in turn, humbly return to Bethlehem, no longer pleasant, but having experienced great bitterness. And you remember, Naomi says to the ladies in Bethlehem, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So let me ask you, at this point, who is it that you resonate with most in the story? What parts or what uh, areas do you find connecting most with you? Let me give you some examples to consider. Maybe you find yourself resonating with Elimelech, right? Having to provide for his family, but feeling inadequate to do so. Or maybe with his feeling overwhelmed by the problems of life and not necessarily seeking wisdom from God in what to do. Maybe it's with having, having made some poor decisions and that you've led your family out from under the blessing of God or out of connections with God's covenant people. Maybe it's having to watch your family struggle under consequences of your poor choices or your lack of faith or your sin. Maybe it's your family struggling because you haven't been present or actively involved. But then again, maybe you resonate more with Naomi having a husband who isn't providing for you, or having a husband that's not leading you closer to God, not nurturing your faith and obedience. Maybe it's having suffered the loss of your spouse and feeling so alone. Maybe it's having to raise your children alone without your spouse, or feeling the weight of having to provide financially in the wake of such grief and loss. Maybe it's the grief of losing a child, or more than one child. Maybe it's being completely broken and stripped of everything in your life, all of your hopes and dreams gone. Maybe it's knowing that for whatever reason, God is the one who has brought you to this place of great brokenness and emptiness. Or maybe it's the humility of having to face others with the shameful consequences of your decisions or of your sin or of the sin of a spouse or family member. Maybe you connect with Mahalon and Kilion, having to face the loss of your father, or growing up, uh, having to learn to be a man without your father there. Maybe it's carrying the responsibility of providing your, for your family at a younger age than you anticipated, or having a father that didn't nurture you spiritually, didn't teach you how to walk intimately in obedience with God. Maybe you resonate with Ruth and Orpah. The challenges of losing a spouse early in your marriage, suddenly single again when you thought that stage or phase of life was over. Maybe it's having to struggle to provide for your family during a time of great grief. Or the struggle of living each day, not only with your grief, but the overwhelming grief of your family. Maybe it's having to decide whether to take the easier road or the sacrificial road in life and the uncertainty of the consequences of your decisions. Maybe you resonate with Orpah and having to return and live with her parents as an adult, unsure of what the rest of her life would look like. 
or with Ruth, loving someone so much that you're willing to give up everything in order to care for them, no matter how hard it is. Or maybe it's with Ruth having to leave her parents and siblings, her country, her culture, live in a strange new land, possibly living your whole life as a stranger and an outsider. Or maybe it's Ruth living in a place where she's a minority, where her ethnicity is the first thing everyone else sees, where she's likely to be looked down on or despised by many people. You see, there's so many ways, even after the first chapter, for us to connect with the story of Ruth. So how are you resonating with the story so far? Have you taken time to really lean in and connect with the people in the story? Most likely, every one of us, it's different, a different combination, different truths, different ways that our heart connects with them. But most likely, the one thing that's probably consistent is at this point, if you've really taken time to connect with the story, you primarily have felt the heaviness, the brokenness, and the grief with only the briefest glimmers of hope. When we see Ruth commit to go with Naomi, and then in the final statement of chapter 1, where it says, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So with this said, I invite you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, as we continue this story. And I would encourage you, lean in. Find out where you connect. If you're using one of the Bibles around you, it should be on page 222. Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So listen, see where you find yourself in the story today and how the objective truth of God's word meets you there. Follow along with me as I read. Now, Naomi had a relative of her, hus of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to his reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, Well, she is the young Moabite woman, the one who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She came and she said to me, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or, or even leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty... Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, 
All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not even one of your servants. So let me ask you to consider, how does your heart resonate with this section of the story this morning? Where can you find yourself in the story? As you consider it, let's talk about the stars of the story, the stars of the story. And the first one for us to consider is Boaz. Boaz, a magnificent man. In verse 1, we're introduced to a worthy man from the clan of Elimelech named Boaz. And if you have been working through the study guide that Pastor Andrew provided, you'll remember that you read there that word translated worthy has this sense of a man of wealth, a man of standing, a man of nobility and honor, a man of sterling character. So right away, we're told that Boaz is someone significant. He's powerful, he's well-off, he's influential. But we can also see clearly right away his character as he interacts with all the people in the fields. We see first and foremost that Boaz is devout. He's godly, he's a spiritual man. The very first words we hear from him, we see a man whose life is filled with love and devotion for God. You remember he comes into the fields and he says to his reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. It's clear in this exchange that it was a common occurrence. Boaz and his workers often interacted this way. Boaz appears and he says to them, Yahweh be with you. And the workers respond, be blessed by Yahweh. We see just that heart that is radiant with a love and devotion for God. We also see that he was a man that desired to bless others. We see it even more clearly as we come to verse 12 in his blessing of Ruth, where he said, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And it's interesting that even as a man of such great wealth and influence, he recognizes the greatest thing he has to offer others is the blessing of Yahweh. We also see in Boaz uh, what we have talked about here many times at Maranatha, that a true love for God always flows out in love to others. And notice the reflections of a truly loving heart we can see here in Boaz. The first is not only the way he interacts with his workers and tenderness and, and blessing them, but the fact that he knows his workers so well that he recognizes Ruth isn't one of them, right? He recognizes that difference immediately. And then in his conversation with Ruth, we see such grace and mercy that it's almost overwhelming. And, and we see Ruth herself is overwhelmed when he says to her, now, Listen, my daughter. And that term, my daughter, is such a kind and gentle phrase. It, it does communicate for us that Boaz is most likely significantly older than Ruth. And so there's, there's a certain sense of propriety that is kept there, but it's a warm, welcoming, inviting 
phrase for him to say, now listen, my daughter. It shows his tender and gentle spirit. But we also see his desire to protect her, his protector's heart in verses 8 and 9 when he tells her not to go glean in another field or to leave his, to keep close to his young women, to let her eyes be on wherever they're at, to follow along them because he's charged the young men not to touch her. We see this heart of protection. We also see a heart of lavish generosity in him. We see not only in him saying, keep close to my young women, is it a matter of protection, but really he's granting her request to glean among the workers, to be right there in the middle of the action. And we'll talk a little more about that. But we also see his generosity in him saying, when you're thirsty, just go to the vessels and take water that the young men have drawn. And it's shocking in a number of ways. One, at this time, most likely the foreign women would have been the lowest socioeconomic workers, right? They would be the ones usually that are drawing the water. But in addition to that, we see here that not only is that not the case, but Boaz has commanded or compelled his young men to draw the water and to provide it for the women. This desire to help make them uh, more gentlemanly, let's say, right? To give them a sense of also providing and caring for them. And to offer that to Ruth was a great sign of generosity. We also see Boaz is respectful, he's compassionate, he's empathetic, he's affirming in how he talks about Ruth's sacrifice. When he takes time to notice how she's left her father and mother, she's left her native land, she's come to dwell with the people that she didn't know. But even more precious is his desire to affirm her faith in Yahweh when he talks about the fact that now she's come to seek refuge under his wings. So we see this magnificent man, but let's not overlook Ruth's own testimony about him. In verse 13, we see Ruth say to him, you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not even one of your servants. And we see in Ruth's own words that because of Boaz's response, she's found comfort, relief, encouragement for a suffering, broken, hurting heart. She has hope restored. And what a powerful testimony this should be to us of the impact that we can have on the life of another and what we say and do, especially on the lives of those who are suffering or who are facing brokenness and grief. So at this point in the story, hopefully you find yourself saying about Boaz, that's the kind of person I want to be. And I would say even more so, men, you should find yourself saying, that's the kind of man that I want to be. That's how I want to deal with the people God brings into my life, especially those who are hurting. If you don't find yourself longing to be more like Boaz, then I would encourage you to spend some more time meditating on this, soaking in it, letting it be a part of your soul. Because this kindness, this, this merciful, glorious interaction we see in so many ways gives us a reflection of the kind of interactions Jesus has with the broken and the hurting, right? This tenderness, this opportunity to stop and pour out love and blessing on them. Well, at this point, hopefully, you're clear that in the story, the shining night has arrived, Okay. Let's look at the second star in our story today, and that's Ruth. 
Ruth, a worthy woman. In verse 2, we see Ruth wastes absolutely no time in getting to work providing for her mother-in-law. It says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. And as just a way of reminder, gleaning is basically the Bible's plan for welfare. The way that God had called his people to not be stingy or selfish with all that he gives them, but instead to leave some of the crops for those in need to be able to come and glean, gather them behind them. Here's two passages of scripture we can see. The first, Leviticus 19.9. God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And then Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, God says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you'll not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So Ruth takes the initiative to go out and and make use of this provision for those in need in order to hopefully provide enough for her and for Naomi to survive. So immediately we see showcased Ruth's diligence, her, her faithfulness, her hard work. She doesn't take time to grieve or get adjusted or isn't focused on how she's feeling, but immediately goes about seeking to be a blessing and provide what their family needs. What might not be as immediately obvious, though, is Ruth's bravery, her bravery, her willingness to risk the dangers of being a foreign woman working alone in possibly isolated fields. We see from Boaz's concern for her protection, and later on in verse 22, Naomi's direct warning that it could be a dangerous situation. But again, Ruth is brave. Even though she knows she's living in God's land with God's people, of course, not everyone lives godly lives. So Ruth is willing to be brave and face those risks to provide for her family. We also see Ruth's incredible broken boldness, honesty, and integrity. We see in verse 7 that she asked to glean among the sheaves after the reapers. And We see this boldness because if you remember the verses we just read, what the Israelites were called to do was basically to leave some around the edges of their field, right? So that those in need could come and gather those things there. And for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe when Ruth gets there, it's late, it's already stripped around the edges, the corners, I'm not sure. Or maybe she's gleaning and realizes this isn't going to be enough for us to survive. But whatever the motivation is, Ruth boldly comes to the, the man in charge of the reapers and says, you know what, would it be possible for me to glean right in the midst of the workers? 
And of course, what that would mean is that she gets first dibs, right? On anything dropped or left or forgotten, she would be right there and would be able to be more effective at gathering things. So this is a a big step of boldness and why he reports that to Boaz. But we also, we see her honesty and her integrity in this because she doesn't just try to get away with it, right? She, She comes and asks for permission for this special favor, And and that phrase translated uh, by the ESV, so she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest, is really unclear in the Hebrew. But I think Robert Hubbard in his excellent commentary on Ruth does a good job when he translates it this way. She said, please let me glean and gather among the, the sheaves following the reapers. She came and has stood here waiting from early this morning until now. This field has been her residence. The house has meant little to her. So basically, Ruth had come and asked for this special permission to to be right there in the midst of all the action. And most likely, the the head of all the reapers said, "Uh, ma'am, I'm not authorized to give you that permission. You have to wait and and talk to the owner. It's It's his stuff. And so she does that. She waits there diligently, patiently, waiting for the owner to come so that she can ask for his special favor. And we see once again, Ruth's integrity lines her up to be in the perfect place to be a recipient recipient of God's blessing and goodness on her. Finally, I think it's worth us noting Ruth's humility and her thankfulness in her interaction with Boaz. Right, the author makes it very clear by the number of times Ruth's ethnicity is mentioned that it's an area of concern She probably was expecting or possibly already experiencing prejudice, possible persecution as a foreigner, and even more so because she's a Moabite, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So when she experiences such kindness and favor from Boaz, we see her overflow with humility and thankfulness. In verse 10, it says she falls on her face, bowing to the ground, saying to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since, since I am a foreigner. And then we see in verse 13, again, for her to say, I found favor in your eyes. And, and really the, the way that that's laid out, it's, it should be more like a wish. Like I, I, I hope or may I continue to find favor in your eyes for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to me. So we see here this worthy woman presented clearly. But again, I would say let's just for a moment not overlook Boaz's testimony about Ruth. Right? In verse 11, we read that Boaz answers her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father, your mother, your native land. You came to a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for all that you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And from Boaz's testimony, it's very clear to us to see her kindness, to see Ruth's sacrificial service, her willingness to suffer hardship or discomfort or even persecution out of love for Naomi. And most of all, her submission now to Yahweh. So at this point, hopefully you find yourself saying of Ruth, that's the kind of person I want to be when I face suffering and hardship. 
If you don't find yourself humbled or challenged by Ruth's response to her situation, again, spend some more time savoring it. You see, this is the kind of humble, sacrificial service that we will later see in Jesus in his willingness to empty himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Well, that brings us to the third unsung hero of the story. Yahweh, a glorious God. Yahweh. If we're not careful, it's easy to overlook the real hero of the story, and that's God. But Yahweh has been ever-present. The author has continued to weave his presence into the story from the very beginning. Let's look at the things that we could see in chapter 1. In verse 6, we see that he is the deliverer of his people, the source of every good gift. In verses 8 and 9, we see that he's the source of kindness, this, this high-said kindness that's central to the book of Ruth. In verse 17, we see that he has the right and the power to hold us accountable. In verse 20 and 21, we see he's not only the source of well-being, but also the source of calamity. And in verse 22, we see that his timing is perfect. And then we come to chapter 2, and we see even more clearly who Yahweh is. We see in verses 3 and 4 that Yahweh is working all things together for good. Yahweh is working all things together for good. In verse 3, the phrase in English is this, She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And this is really my favorite phrase in these verses, where if you were to translate it literally, it says, Her chance chanced upon. Her chance chanced upon the field belonging to Boaz. Or in other words, as luck would have it, she ended up in Boaz's field, right? And again, Robert Hubbard, in his commentary on Ruth, presents it this way. The writer offered a brief peek at Yahweh's hidden providential hand behind the accident. He had carefully guided Ruth's steps to the right place. By the same token, believers today would do well to observe similar accidents more closely. Perhaps they might find the same divine hand at work. And then almost immediately in verse 4, we see him use this phrase, and behold, and, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. But again, it doesn't quite have the same ring for us in English. It's more like, well, just look at that, Boaz showed up too. Right? The underlying current is this sense of surprise at, at what God is doing. Again, Robert Hubbard, he describes it this way. It's an exclamation of surprise. It marked an unexpected turn of events which drew readers emotionally into the narrative. It underscored the startling coincidence of Boaz's arrival at the same place and at the same time as Ruth. So again, we see him emphasizing that Yahweh is working all things together for good. The next thing we see here is not only that, but that Yahweh is good, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We could talk about the goodness expressed just by his commands for there to be the opportunity to glean, right? That we talked about gleaning and we see his compassionate care for those who are hurting through that. 
But specifically, we see here in verse 4, Boaz, again, blessing his workers and saying, the Lord be with you. And their answer, the Lord bless you. And the feeling underneath that is that Yahweh is the good reward. He is the treasure. He is not merely the blesser, but he is the blessing. And it's even more clear when Boaz blesses Ruth. And he says to her, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. See, even with all of his wealth and with Ruth's great need, Boaz points ultimately to the one that is most glorious and calls on him to repay and reward her. It echoes the proverb that we read in Proverbs 19:17 that says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Well, at this point, you should find yourself saying, Yahweh is faithful. He's trustworthy. He's worth pursuing. And if from chapter 1 there were dark clouds of doubt, of concern, if there was some sense of seeing him as the source of calamity causing you to feel some, some kind of tension and inner turmoil, at this point in the story, the rays of his goodness should be breaking through. It should be giving you some sense of his glory and the hope that he's doing something greater. And so if you don't find yourself enamored with Yahweh, more resolved to entrust yourself to him and pursue his good plans, again, I encourage you, meditate on it more. Let it soak into you so that you can say with the psalmist what he says in Psalms 30, verses 4 and 5. Sing praise to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So those are the stars of our story. And now let us take just a few minutes to consider the subtleties of the story. The subtleties of the story. There are two things that you may or may not have noticed as you were looking at this. The first I want us to look at is the contrast between Elimelech and Boaz. Elimelech and Boaz. You see, chapter 1 starts with Elimelech. And we see Elimelech as poor, as needy, not having any influence, no evident spirituality. We see him lead his family out of God's blessing. He leads them into harm's way. But then chapter 2 starts with Boaz. We see that he's wealthy. He has an abundance of resources. He's influential. His relationship and love for God is clear and central. He leads his workers and God and Naomi into God's blessings. Did I say and God and Naomi? And Ruth and Naomi into God's blessings. And leads them under his protection. And the reason I want to point this out for us is because I want to challenge especially the men in this room to recognize the importance of your leadership in your family. Not merely your provision for your family, but recognize that your faith and your relationship with God will be of critical importance in your family's story. If you are not intentionally leading your family to Jesus, then you are leading them away from him. Now, 
I know we have a number of single men in here, and I hope you haven't checked out from this lesson because you're not married yet, because in case you didn't notice, it was Boaz's consistent faithfulness and intimacy with God as a single man and a single older man that enables him to be a blessing and a reflection of God's faithfulness, provision, and protection to Ruth and Naomi. So, just as much, I would encourage you to feel the weight and the burden of being faithful and passionate in your relationship with God and being diligent in your labors so that you are ready to be a leader and a blessing to those God brings into your life. Another subtlety that I think we need to consider is the inclusion of foreigners, the inclusion of foreigners. Starting at the end of chapter 1 and throughout chapter 2, we see Ruth's ethnicity, the fact that she's a foreigner, and specifically a Moabite, becomes very central. It comes to the forefront of the story itself. And I think there's several reasons that just need to be mentioned, okay? The first is because the Israelites were forbidden to marry foreigners in general, okay? The Israelites were forbidden to marry foreigners in general. You can see here in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 4, it says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall not make a covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Now, we could look at Deuteronomy 21 that gives us some uh, exceptions or some ways that Israelite men could marry. Mainly, there, there wasn't to be any covenant with the foreigners, but that uh, they would have women that were completely separated from the influence of their foreign family or people and had been fully assimilated into Israel. But I just think it's worth noting that there was a general prohibition. But Ruth is not only a foreigner. The second thing is Ruth is a Moabite, and the Moabites in Israel have a bad history. We can see it summed up here in Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever." So again, in summary, the Moabites had not shown hospitality to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. Then worse than that, they had hired Balaam to curse them. And, and then when cursing didn't work, actually Balaam goes on to, to encourage the Moabites to send their women to seduce the men and bring God's judgment on the people. And as a result, we see God reasonably say, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Or you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. 
But it's very interesting. Um, Gaylord Browlick, a theologian, makes an interesting and compelling observation about the Ruth narrative and how it inverts the behavior of the Moabites described in Deuteronomy 23. Think about this. In Ruth 1, Moab grants hospitality to Elimelech and his family, Israelite famine refugees, and the two sons end up marrying Moabite women. In Ruth 2, a Moabite gleans in a field in Bethlehem to provide bread for her Israelite mother-in-law. In Ruth 3, Boaz prays that Yahweh might bless Ruth, one who has taken shelter under Yahweh's wings. This is in contrast to Moab, who hired Balaam to curse Israel. And spoilers if you haven't read the end of Ruth. Ruth 4, Naomi is blessed through her Moabite daughter-in-law and through the birth of a son to Naomi. In effect, the reproach of Deuteronomy 23, verses 4 and 5, because of the historical action of the Moabites, is undone by the story of Ruth, that Ruth is living in such a way and evidences this characteristic of kindness, this high-said kindness that shows that she can be a part of the covenant community, and that her abandonment of her homeland and family is identified as her first act of kindness and her selection of Boaz as a second greater act. Ultimately, though, I believe this sense of a foreigner being brought to the forefront is to reinforce the missional heart of God. You see, God's plan was always for Israel to be a kingdom of priests that ushered the nations into the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. If we look at Genesis 12, verse 3, we see God say to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God speaking to the Israelites says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then in Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, we see it even more clearly Stated, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." So Ruth's foreignness is brought forward so that as we see Boaz regard Ruth, this Moabitess, with such honor and praise, it calls into question the legitimacy of any kind of prejudice or disdain because of a group's ethnicity. We see here laid out that there is no ethnic boundaries that could not be overcome by a humble heart aligned to Yahweh. But not only does Yahweh welcome Ruth into the covenant community, right? He places her in the lineage of David and ultimately the lineage of Jesus. Looking at this family tree and from Matthew 1.5, we see that Boaz was the son of Salmon and Rahab. Boaz is the son of Rahab. Isn't it understandable then that we see in him such a sensitive and tender heart for a foreign woman who has left everything behind and entrusted herself to the God of Israel and to his people. 
Okay, the sentiments of the story. The sentiments of the story. Two things. First, handling hardship. Handling hardship. When hardship happens, there are several useful things we can glean from the story so far. Did you see that? Glean? Never mind. Anyway. First, remember that grieving, hurting, or struggling is okay. It's okay to need help. It's honorable to ask for help. We see that in Ruth's life. We're reminded that it's okay to be struggling and it's okay to ask for help. We have to try to avoid the danger of thinking that everyone already knows your need or everyone should already be helping you. Be willing to be honest about your struggle. Be willing to ask for help. The second thing we see is that if you've walked away from God and or his people, repent and return. Repent and return. Don't let shame or guilt or bitterness, brokenness, fear, or anything else keep you from turning back to God. Now, if you haven't ever turned to God, you can't turn to him. So let me just take a moment and ask some very important questions. Have you ever come to a place in life where you recognize your own selfishness, your sinfulness, your brokenness, your need for someone outside of you to do what you couldn't do, change your heart and give you a right relationship with God? Have you ever experienced some understanding of how Jesus, God's son, came and lived the life of obedience that you could not live, took the wrath of God that you deserved, and offers to join you to himself so your sins can be forgiven and you can live as a child of God? If not, today can be that day. Please, let me just encourage you. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, don't leave today without coming up and talking to me or talking to somebody around you and asking them, how can I start a life-changing relationship with Jesus? It's the most important thing. Turn to God. And if you have turned to God and have moved away, then repent and return to him. The next thing we see as you struggle with brokenness, suffering, sickness, or grief, resist the temptation to surrender to despair. You know, the truth is I, I have found chronic pain of any kind, whether that's physical pain, emotional pain, grieving, suffering, any kind of pain that continues without any end in sight is one of the most challenging things to deal with in life. And let me just encourage you, not to give in to despair, even though you might not see a light at the end of the tunnel. No matter how bad things hurt, they can only hurt for a lifetime. And that really is not that long. So don't surrender to despair. Number four, instead of wallowing in your pain, actively pursue being a blessing to others. We see Ruth model this so beautifully. She's not concerned ultimately most about how she's feeling, but how she can be a blessing to those around her. Number five, nurture hope, humility, and thankfulness. When you're struggling, when life is hurting, when you're handling hardships, it's important to be intentionally pursuing things that are going to promote and nurture hope, humility, and thankfulness in your life. Whether that's spending time with God's people or in his word and spending time listening to things or reading things, listening to music, worshiping, whatever it is in your life, things that will nurture hope, a humility, and a thankfulness. I would really just encourage you, especially 
when things are hard is the time you need to more passionately pursue practicing thankfulness in your life. And then sixth, throughout it all, continue to remind yourself that God is working for your good and his glory. I'm sure you're familiar with Romans 8, 28, but it's worth reviewing. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In Romans 8, 32, one of my favorite verses, it says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Another thing that is always comforting to me when things are hard is the first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. I would commend it to you. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all of the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. So remind yourself, God is working for your good and his glory. Second sentiment, living like Jesus to bless the world. Living like Jesus to bless the world. As many of you know, at Maranatha, we have four words that start with the letter B that encapsulate or we use to communicate the priorities of our church. They are bow, build, bless, and belong. And the phrase we use to communicate the blessed priority is this phrase, living like Jesus, to bless the world. And we, as we look at today's story, we really couldn't find a better example of the blessed priority than we see in the life of Boaz. From the time that Boaz shows up in the story, we vividly see the outflowing of his devotion and his love for God as a desire to bless all of those around him. He blesses his workers. He blesses Ruth. Through Ruth, he blesses Naomi. And eventually we can say that he blesses the world, right? Because through his relationship with Ruth, God brings forth Jesus, the Savior of the world. So let me just end today by calling you to once again Commit yourself to living like Jesus to bless the world. And five steps to help you do that. One, begin each day with prayer. Ask God to show you the people that he brings into your life and to give you a heart that's desirous of pouring out his love into their lives. The second thing, let me encourage you to commit to take the time to listen to the people God brings into your life whether that's strangers in a store, whether that's your friends, your family, your children, your spouse. The truth is we all live busy lives. There's always so many demands on us. So many things want our attention. But let me ask you to just make the commitment for it to be a priority to stop and listen to the people God brings you in order to be a blessing to them. Number three, live a life of hospitality. Eat with people. Invite them into your life. Invite them to share in the many blessings that God has given you. Number four, ask for the ability 
to delight in serving others, to delight in serving others, being able to care for them, love them, take time to assist them, help them, walk with them. The truth is loving others is often inconvenient. So ask that the Holy Spirit will give you the ability to delight in doing it. Number five, be prepared to share with them the hope that you have found in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the impact that our church could have on our communities, on Columbus, on the world, if all of the people sitting in this room would just make the commitment to live each day like Jesus in order to bless the world? So let me just encourage you, as you go out from here, as you go out into your week this week, think about how can you do that? How can you live like Jesus to bless the world? How can you be like Boaz and be prepared to be a blessing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us, for your grace, for your mercy, for your abundant goodness to us. We thank you that you are always at work in us, around us, Father, there's so many times we don't see your goodness. We don't see your providence. So, Father, give us eyes to see that we might be reassured that you are working for our good and for your glory. And, Father, we pray that in that, we would have a desire to be the kind of person that is a blessing to others. Help us to endure hardship for your glory and help us seek to be a blessing to those who are struggling, that in it all, Christ would be exalted and the world would come to know and love you as we have today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you guys. Thank you for your patient endurance. <laughs>